Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Brave, the new web browser by the inventor of JavaScript. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome without even thinking about it, but it's time to upgrade to something way faster, totally private, that actually pays you for browsing. That's why Brave is the new browser that everyone is switching to. Brave is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all of Google's spyware while blocking ads and trackers right out of the box. YouTube ads too. So it works just like Chrome, except it's lighter and faster. Here's the cool part. If you choose to enable ads that you control, Brave actually pays you for any ad that you happen to see. You can then take your earnings and cash them out, tip them to your favorite websites and creators, or redeem rewards. It's like Air Miles, but just for browsing the web as you usually do. No other browser does this, and no other browser pays you. And no, Brave doesn't collect your data and sell it. It keeps everything local to your device. Brave is still a bit of an industry secret among lead tech users and privacy advocates, despite growing to over 22 million users in a very short period of time. You can be ahead of the curve, too. It's still early. Switching to Brave is super easy and quick. It lets you import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave, too. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. You can go to brave.com slash likeville and switch now. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to the next generation of browsers with Brave. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of talking again with philosopher. Susan Nyman. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, one of her first books, um, Evil in Modern Thought. And I got to say, well, welcome, Susan. Glad to be here again, John. Yeah, I got to say, this, this particular conversation has uh, a kind of magic for it for me because I have assigned Evil in Modern Thought, I would say, you know, it is one of the two books, Jonathan Hyde's uh, book and Evil and Modern Thought, the two books that I have assigned to more students than any other book. I've assigned this book to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students over over the years. So I feel like uh, you know having a conversation with you about this book um, is sort of like a, a seminary you know, professor who gets to somehow have a conversation with Saint Paul about the oh, Book no, no, of no, Romans, no. you know. <laughs> It's like this thing that I've been teaching on that's a textbook for my classes all the time. And I get to, you know, actually talk to you about it. It is an absolutely, um, I I found nothing in, you know, since it came out in 2002, I have found uh, there's nothing that grabs more students and gets them into philosophy more readily than, uh, than, 
this book and, and, and the problems that it raises. So you know, in, how would you sort of formulate I to our... I tell you how happy that makes me. Um, it, I'm, I'm, I'm honored and delighted because what um, led me to start writing that book was the mismatch between the kinds of questions that lead most young people to philosophy and the texts that we are asked to read in the process of, you know, getting a degree in philosophy. And they almost have nothing to do with each other. You know, uh, standardly, the history of Western philosophy is taught by beginning with Descartes and, you know, talking about whether he managed to prove that he existed and that the rest of the world existed. And I'm terribly sorry, but, you know, most sane people um, do not really worry about that problem. They worry about the problems in the existing world. Um, but the, you know, grand epistemological narrative, can you prove, you know, that reality exists is, is, is just not uh, what uh, brings people to philosophy. And, you know, then I started exploring in my own work and realizing uh, I'm not sure about Descartes, frankly. Uh, this is why I wouldn't ever start teaching philosophy with Descartes. Although I, I have a friend and colleague who thinks that you know there's more to Descartes than than you know we usually take from the meditations. But you know, if you looked at any of the great philosophers, they were all actually talking about the problem of evil. That is, how can we lead meaningful lives? in a world that is full of suffering, full of evil. Um, and those are questions that ordinary people ask themselves all the time. As, as uh, Actually, Dick Rorty wrote a really nice review of it, which was all the nicer. He's a generous guy, um, in, or was a generous guy, because first of all, I had attacked him in, <laughs> in an essay. But he also realized that in a certain sense, the book was an attack on the narrative that he presented in a very famous book, probably his most read book, uh, Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature, which talks about philosophy as this attempt to prove the existence of the external world. And he ends it by concluding, you know, basically this debate is going nowhere and so we ought to end philosophy. And uh, I really was trying to present a counter-narrative to say, no, actually, we're just not reading the right texts of Kant, Leibniz, Hume, Hegel, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I threw in also some people who are not standard reading in, you know, English-speaking philosophy courses. But uh, what was so important and, and actually revelatory for me when I was doing the research is it's all there. And, uh, you know, when Hegel writes, uh, you know, what I'm doing is just a better version of Leibniz's theodicy, you got to say, oh, <laughs> this is not something that Hegelians like to emphasize, of course. You see why, you know. And I have asked a number of people over the years um, why, you know, why 20th century philosophy 
with the exception of a couple of German Jews, uh, Hannah Arendt, uh, but also Theodor Adorno, um, why philosophy dropped this problem in the 20th century. And uh, philosophy not only dropped the problem, it read its own very boring interpretation of the history of philosophy back into the 18th and 19th centuries. And I haven't ever gotten a good answer. Um, I really don't know why this rewriting of history began, but uh, I wanted to write a corrective to it. Uh, the interesting thing is I, I, I didn't really, I mean, I thought some uh, intelligent people who weren't philosophers might be interested in reading it, but I didn't expect to have a lot of general readers who then you know, went on to ask me, so what's your solution to the problem of evil? <laughs> <laughs> um, and that kind of, you know, that of course affected my later work that I, you know, although I don't think the problem of evil has a solution, um, that I was encouraged to turn, you know, more directly to speak in my own voice about the way I think the world ought to be. So yeah, well, in in moral clarity, you you do respond to that, and you, I mean, the short answer is that you you present heroism. You know, moral heroism is the is the only response to the problem of evil, and it's totally unreliable, and it may not work, but it's what we it's all we have. <laughs> you know what? I may quote you on that because actually, my next book, or possibly the next book, one book, it depends on how it goes. Um, is going to be about heroism. I'm going to expand the stuff on heroism that I started in moral clarity. Um, so, uh, yeah, you're right. That yeah, because I mean, in moral clarity, it's sort of sketched out in, in very sort of you, you present sort of almost like profiles and courage and you present people who strike you as, as, as heroes and their context. But yeah, I mean, if you if you worked at more of a kind of a general theory of heroism as a response to the problem of evil, that would be just you know that would be I wild. Do, I, I, I gotta you know disappoint you in advance. I don't do general theories. <laughs> I, I, I actually don't think they're all that interesting, and they're much less fun. Uh, than talking about particular examples. So I, I have my six heroes, and I'm going to say some general things about heroism. But um, And they're none of the heroes that appear in moral clarity, um, uh, with the exception of uh, Odysseus. I am going to you know, extend that chapter on Odysseus because I think it's really important um, to criticize Adorno and Horkheimer's uh, you know, on all of that. But, um, and that is where questions over heroism start in the Western tradition. Yeah, but I have two, I, two, two random, random footnotes to what you just said before. First of all, um, interesting footnote. I was introduced to you by Richard Rorty's review. Oh, really? I read, yeah, I read that review, was completely blown away by it. And I immediately got your book. And that's how I was first introduced to you, was by Richard Rorty's review. Uh, second thing, a student of mine who is a former student of mine who is now 
in the Canadian equivalent of the FBI, the, uh, the RCMP. Uh, he sent me this really, really nice uh, message a couple of months ago. And he said, um, you know, I just want to tell you, like, in my, in my life in law enforcement and in my life in general, you know, the best book I read in all of my education was uh, Moral Clarity. And he said, I absolutely loved uh, Susan Nyman's Moral Clarity. And then he sent me, I'll find it and I'll send you, I'll send you this. Well, I'll ask his permission first, but he made a bed for his wife out of a tree. No shit. <laughs> oh, I am. Which is directly thrilled. from, you know, when you talk about Odysseus, I, like at the I end. Of when I talk about Yeah, Odysseus. yeah. And he, he made one. Oh, dude has some picture. skills. I'm so awesome. Yeah. He made, and he said, I got the idea from Susan's book. But uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's very. It's funny how like books, especially when you when you teach them, they become inter, they they weave into your whole your life and to other people's lives, and then they sort of come back to you like boomerangs, and you get these echoes of things that you taught you know a long time ago, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting experience. That's so but nice. Let's think about it. Yeah. I just have to say a word about Rorty because, um, you know, I, I don't, I disagree with an awful lot of what he's written, but I, there was an occasion when he was in Berlin and I was supposed to introduce him. And so uh, we went out to lunch and I thanked him for the review and he reminded me, I had totally forgotten that I had written an article that was very critical of him. You know? <laughs> I, I'd just forgotten it, you know. And he brought it up in a rather elegant way. <laughs> he had indeed read it. Uh, but that didn't stop him from, um, you know, writing that generous review of Evil and Modern Plot. So um, this is the way, you know philosophers ought to behave they don't always but um it's yeah, he, he's a real mensch you know he's a real like kind of like a sort of aristotle's magnanimous man you know like somebody who's just uh like fundamental decency there you know yeah it's, yeah. it's rare but it's always good i think i mean this is another <laughs> little piece of folk wisdom that i uh <laughs> my children were all uh, refer to as which is always nice when your children think you've said something right um you know whenever you have an occasion to um give honest praise do so mm -hmm. um, because people are so often they hesitate they're embarrassed they think it looks like brown nosing or whatever um but you know more honest praise would do the world world good and it's really very it's a very easy thing to do you know yeah I mean, it can go from you know that was a great talk you gave to that's a nice sweater you're wearing you know <laughs> no i understand i understand exactly what you're talking about it's funny because there's this one point in your discussion of rousseau and evil and modern thought where you you discuss the all the ways. I mean, you're basically sort of talking about what Rousseau says in Emile and, and how there is this how power corrupts relationships and it, it, in all sorts of suspicious ways, but that we shouldn't we shouldn't act as if like that is natural, you know, a la sort of Thrasymachus or Foucault right. or. Um, or, you know, that we shouldn't act like this is the only way to be, that there are other ways exactly. to be. 
and I, you know, I, one of the, you know, just what you said about like honest praise, like, um, one of the things that I, you know, there's many things I like about being a grown up. There's many things that I love about being 46 years old and being at this Isn't point nice? in my life. But one of the things, one of the things that I really like about being in this position in my life is that I have position, I have power, I have comfort. And because of that, I can be generous without any suspicion that there's an angle. Right. <laughs> and that's, I, that's I love that. I love that I can, I can just love the things that I want. And, and the people who receive that praise don't even have to think for a second that there's any angle because I don't need anything from them. <laughs> like I have all, I have all the things. I have all the things, you know, so and that is that is a very freeing uh, place yeah. to be in, you know, because I mean, the worst is to be in an environment, the kind of environments that you know Tom Wolfe describes in the Bonfire of the Vanities, where everybody is just just manipulating everybody else all the time. I mean, that that to me is almost like a close approximation of what hell would be like for me. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. To be in a situation where everybody is using everybody and manipulating everybody and lying to everybody. And that just makes my skin crawl. I mean, that's just, you know, but, but that, is, that is a kind of evil, right? I mean, that is a kind of oh, evil. And, and yeah, and it shakes your faith, um, not so much in the world, but perhaps in the social world. You know, in the way that these Russian, you know, paid trolls sort of through social media just try and undermine our faith in each other and just make us suspicious of everybody and everything. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> I, I agree with you, which is, which is also why um, occasionally, uh, like with moral clarity, especially in Germany, I think, but, but also elsewhere, I, I get accused of being, you know, too Pollyannish. I don't even know if that's the word anymore because it comes from a very old novel. Um, you know, it still is here a lot. You know. Okay, you know, I'm 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 naive. I'm you know, the world is much worse than I think it is, and and I just feel like there are so many people, and there's so many um, movements and schools of thought that focus exactly on the way power you know, corrupts and manipulates uh, that, that people have become suspicious that anyone can act without those uh, considerations. And it just seems to me before I'm going to take up anybody's time listening uh, to me jabber or, or reading a book of mine, um, I better have something to say that gives what Kant called orientation and thinking something that gives us a little, hope, a little perspective that the world could be differently than we're taught to perceive it. Yeah. Well, that, that was, you know, they've, there's been all these scandals that have been happening in, um, in social science, but specifically in, in social psychology, all these sort of landmark greatest hits studies that, you know, entire chapters and textbooks were based on, uh, they've gone back and you know, looked over the data, they've tried to replicate them, and turns out a lot of them are, uh, you know, wrong. Uh, but but one, one of the ones that I remember being especially surprised by was the famous marshmallow test. Yeah. Did you hear the, did you hear the revision of that 
No, I didn't. Oh, it, it completely, it would fit so well in your book on heroism because it's, it speaks to me to the way in which heroism restores our faith in the world. You know, but anyway, so the, the way they got the, they used to think that the kids who fail the marshmallow test, um, that it, it is because they lack this sort of ineffable this quality is, called is, will, willpower. Right? Yeah. And that this leads and fits into a lot of kind of neoliberal understandings of the world that everything's just, you know, you got to have more discipline and willpower and stuff like that. But it turns out when they went back and looked over the data, there are things that the researchers completely forgot to, I mean, they, they registered them. So they're good scientists. They wrote it all down, but they didn't think it was relevant. Like what? Turns out, um, turns out all the kids who passed the marshmallow test, everyone, they have responsible, trustworthy adults in their home. It could be just their mom. It could be uh, just their dad. It could be a grandparent. It could be, but they live in a house with an adult who keeps her promises, who does what she says she's going to do. And so therefore, when an adult comes in the room and says, uh, you know, if you resist this, I'll come back um, and give you, you know, two or three of them. It's not willpower. It's that they have faith that sometimes adults keep their fucking promises. I mean, like when you read this, it just it made me Whoa. weep for like probably an hour. I was like, holy oh, shit. Really? Turns out. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And the kids, I was going to say, you know, they'd already eaten enough marshmallows that day or something. But yeah. No, no, it's that they don't. If you grow up with an adult who is like an addict or a drunk or is like really mentally unstable or unreliable and they say, yeah, we're going to go to the museum on Saturday and then Saturday comes and they're like, I don't feel like it. Mommy's not feeling good today. Or, you know, daddy doesn't feel like it. If they live with flaky, untrustworthy adults it makes them actually not trust, well, not trust adults, but also not trust the future. Sure. And so they don't know if the future is going to come. And so they sure. want to take whatever pleasure, they want to take whatever pleasure is uh, right here in the moment because they really don't know, you know, it's, you know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's they, they don't believe in the future. That and this, and that, fascinating. Yeah. really fascinating. Right? Please send yeah. me the information. I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I will. But it's, but this is, you know, this is, I think, one of these really, uh, I know you, you are very careful about not defining evil uh, in itself, but you do define it by its, um, its impact on us. And I, I really like that, you know, the, the whole idea that, um, that really, you know, you're looking at evil when it's something that shatters your faith in the world. That the world makes sense, right? right? That, right? And I think that's that's absolutely, you know, like the one of the examples when I'm teaching on your book is is I I start off one of the classes and I, I talk about Dennis Rader, right? Who was the uh, famous serial killer, BTK. Okay. And this guy was like an elder in his church, Lutheran church. He was a pillar of his community. He was married to a woman. He slept in a bed with his wife for, you know, like, but they were married like 45 years or something. He had kids, grandkids. Nobody had a clue. 
he was never he was never violent with his kids. He was never violent with his wife, with anybody. He just had this total double life, and he eventually got got caught. And then I just uh, you know my I see you know I am totally uninterested in him and his crimes. Uh, like Arendt, I think evil's mostly boring and banal and predictable. Uh, but let's talk about his wife. Yeah. How is she ever going to trust? anybody again she was like she was because because she's gonna think like wow how could i have not seen that right and that that kills your face and also the children i suppose it must be uh yeah devastating it was actually one of his daughters that um that was responsible for him getting caught because he would taunt law enforcement from time to time like on on anniversaries of killings, he would send in a note to the police um, saying, ha, 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 you still haven't caught me. And wow. He would say like some little detail about one of his horrible crimes that only somebody who was there could know. Like there's no way somebody from the public could know. And at one point, somebody in um, the police department had the bright idea, you know what, why don't we post his note all on TV and on the internet. And then, if, you know, maybe somebody will recognize the handwriting. And one of his adult daughters recognized the handwriting. Oh, wow. Yeah. My she was completely God. horrified. And she called up and said, I think that's my father's handwriting. Like, and that was, that was it, right? So, I mean, we, we sort of have to, we have to have faith in the world, right? Uh, or at least in order to to func- to function, right? Um, I mean, you sort of split up a bunch of different uh, philosophies. I mean, we, we don't have the time to go into all of them, but I, I wanted to sort of see what... You mentioned this in the afterword to the paperback edition, which is fantastic. Thank I you. actually make... I make students read that um, first <laughs> before okay. the actual book because it's how it, really that's how i teach the critique of pure reason i i, I make them read the back first yeah okay <laughs> well it just it's sort of i i've recognized that it it forestalls a lot of um it kind of answers some major objections that i know some of my students especially my uh, students of color who come from you know from outside of what is called the West. And it answers the objections I get from my hardcore Zionist <laughs> students and from, it answers all hey, the questions. How does it answer hardcore Zionist objections? I, 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 well, because they're really up on, on, you know, a rent and how she messed up. Uh, she was wrong about Eichmann and that right. Eichmann was actually like a committed anti-Semite and was not the doofus that he presents himself in Jerusalem on trial. Yeah. So it responds to all of those um, concerns and which is, which is good because it's like sort of like an action movie where they go in and like, you know, the red wire, the red wire, (laughs) diffusing the bomb first, you know, (laughs) and that way, like you just diffuse all those bombs and then, you know, now we can have, we can have a, a good conversation without people getting tripped up by you know certain things but um i mean the weird th- thing is once a book is out in the world you actually uh realize how you should have written it and in in two cases i actually went back and changed in the body of the text which publishers hate 
because you know you're working there by yourself maybe you have a couple of friends who you can show it to and then suddenly when a book is out and you discuss it or or teach it um you know suddenly you realize that I could have put better that I could have cleared up you know and and so it's it's i mean i suppose it's one of the nice frustrations of writing a book that you think it out further and you you know you come to new insights but yeah <laughs> it would be nice sometimes you know if there were a way to do it just to say okay this is the first version of learning from the germans and now that i've been talking about it for a year and a half here's what i can do better you know so yeah well i mean in my sort of dream scenario if uh, you know that stephen king straight misery where like uh Kathy Bates like kid kidnaps that writer and makes him write like the sequel. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't know that. <laughs> oh my god. It is it's a Stephen King story. I, I never actually read the story, but I saw the movie because I love Kathy Bates. And she's like this crazed, obsessive fan of this particular writer. And he's taking too long to write <laughs> the sequel to his book. So she fucking kidnaps him you know, like ties him up to a, to a desk and like guards him, locks him in a room and forces him to write the sequel. And at one point he tries to escape and then she like breaks his legs with a sledgehammer. <laughs> it's really intense. So if I was a psychotic, like Susan Nyman fan and I would, uh, my dream scenario, except it would be a free will endeavor. Um, would be like a, a new edition of evil and modern thought that that folded in an analysis of Adam Smith and Charles Darwin. Now, of course, you mentioned this. You mentioned this in the in the afterward. Yeah, that I should. But I think when I look when I look at my environment right now, um, the people who most are continuing the argument of evil and modern thought without realizing it. Um, are the evolutionary psychologists Absolutely. who say who say you know whatever is is right um, <laughs> is well it's not so much right it's just it's whatever it's like, is, is, is yeah it's there for a reason and if you can't see that reason it's because we don't have access to our ancestors circa three hundred thousand years ago two hundred thousand years ago that. If we had access, you know, like I said in my message to you, this starts to sound suspiciously like St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, but it's like sort of, well, if we had a godlike perspective afforded by new fossil evidence and new whatever that we would see, but we should, whenever we go into uh, examining a life form, um, such as Homo sapien, we should assume that everything is there for a reason, because if it wasn't there, uh, if it wasn't, if it wasn't sort of, it did not provide some sort of fitness, it wouldn't exist, right? So there's your Charles Darwin uh, long-term influence, uh, you know and then what? Adam Smith. It's the market people, right? Mm -hmm. the, whatever the market produces is good, and you know if if you can't see that, it's because you're an idiot or we just don't have the relevant data. This is a metaphysical statement. They're both making metaphysical statements about the world. You know, um, John, you'll be happy to know, I'm going to cite you. <laughs> um, you I, I have been worried 
about evolutionary psychology, but you just put it beautifully in a way that I hadn't thought about. And I am going to, I, I'm not going to devote a whole book to it because my God, that would be boring. But um, in the next thing that I'm writing, I am going to talk about the influence of evolutionary psychology on, you know, popular thinking all over the place at the moment. And you just put that um, perfectly. So um, you get a credit in the next. Well, I actually got it from your book. Because your book, because evil mind thought, it, it, it sets up the, it sets up a framework that, you know, it's like I was saying to the producer, Eric Sagan, before, before uh, you came on, I said, you know, uh, Susan Hammond's book, Evil Mind Thought, it's like, once you, once you see what she's saying, you can't stop fucking seeing it everywhere. Like you, you start to see those categories and those questions everywhere. <laughs> and so when, as soon as I heard, uh, for instance, that where it really clicked for me is there's a, there's a guy here in Montreal at Concordia University named, and uh, he's, um, he's an evolutionary psychologist. He teaches in the business school and he wrote a book called The Consuming Instinct. And he, is, he, he essentially says that like everything from like porn to McDonald's to all of our, all the things that we love and that we spend money on, um, those things, we love them for good evolutionary reasons. And it's all basically, uh, it all makes sense, <laughs> you know, in our evolutionary past. And so it's, it's, you know, it has nothing to do with, with advertising or marketing or, or any of these other things that it's mainly just, it's about evolution and, you know, how we got to hear it. It's a theodicy. It is absolutely a theodicy, and you know maybe uh, you got it from you know from the framework, but um, you just you put it uh, you you just put it beautifully. I mean, look, uh, here's one. Uh, you know, why don't you go and write? <laughs> I, I did think I was setting up a framework, and one of the questions I got uh, from a lot of people was, "You left out my favorite person. Why didn't you talk about Kierkegaard or you know, uh, Montes?" Uh, Montana or something, and and you know my answer was always, um, go do it yourself. Um, you know, uh, absolutely. I didn't. I wasn't trying to be all encompassing. Although I have to tell you, since we're talking about reviews, probably the worst review I got for that book was from someone in the new at the New Republic. I mean, she was a kid. She really wasn't competent. Who actually who accused me of. Um, Seeing evil everywhere, seeing the problem of evil everywhere. I had just gone nuts. And as an example, she um, she took uh, the, what I had written about Rawls. Now, it just so happens that Rawls was my thesis advisor. <laughs> and it just so happens that I have learned... He did not do any research before writing this, huh? No. Uh, apparently not. I mean, this was a long time ago. I guess Wikipedia wasn't so advanced or whatever. Um, maybe it was, didn't even exist in 2002, 2003. But um, I have in my possession letters which I have not published in which Rawls wrote to me, I'm glad you're working on the problem of evil. I've always thought that problem was behind all of my work. Love, Jack. I mean, I have several, <laughs> several letters. Um, I... And I 
you know. Do you, do you really need a letter like that to, to make that point? It's obvious, like, all the way through a theory of justice. It's, it's completely it obvious. It obvious to anyone but me, frankly, until I said it. Um, it just hmm. wasn't. And he didn't talk about it that way because, um, I mean, you know, one of the things that book does is to secularize the problem of evil. The problem of evil was seen as a religious problem. And if English-speaking philosophers talked about it at all, they looked at Leibniz and Hume's dialogues, and they just didn't pay attention to any of the other texts. And, you know, the only people who were working on it were, you know, these Christian philosophers like the Adams family or something who, who you know, Bob and Marilyn Adams, who, who just simply treated it in, in, in religious terms. And, um, and so everybody else was allergic to it. And, you know, what I uh, wrote basically is, you know, yeah, religion is one answer to the problem of evil, but the problem doesn't start with religion. It starts, you know, with life, with, you know, when you recognize the gap between ought and is, you are recognizing the problem of evil. Uh, so anyway, people did not, um, did not, uh, uh, so did not recognize that in Rawls at all. And unfortunately, I didn't really get it until he was too sick. He had a series of strokes he could receive visitors, but he couldn't have serious philosophical conversations. And he congratulated me on the book, which came out just before he died. And I said, so did I get you right? You know? <laughs> he said, well, <laughs> and, and he, you know, he said, well, yes, but yeah, but the, you know, I would put it slightly differently. And, and um, you know, and then two months later he was dead. Um, I should tell you, this is, <laughs> I hope it happens. Um, my, uh, one of my teaching assistants when I was teaching, uh, evil modern thought as a lecture course at Yale, um, one of my assistants, um, wanted with me proposed that we do a reader, you know, a commented, commented reader to accompany the book. Yeah. And, you know, make the selections and and all of that. And and I actually said to him, uh, sure, if you make the selections and I'll, you know, write some of the commentary, but I'm just too busy to go and do that. I'm working on other stuff. Uh, poor, he's, a, he's both an overworked adjunct at Rutgers and a single father. And so... He hasn't gotten around to finishing his part, but we do have a contract to do it. And and he just told me he wants to, he really wants to do it for the 20th anniversary of Evil and Modern Thought. So maybe we will do it, um, you know. I really, I really hope you, I, I mean, I can tell you right now, I would, I would um, put in, you know, a, a sizable order with my bookstore. You know, I would, because I, I basically have done that on the fly. Right. Regardless, like when I teach this, I sort of, I choose some Leibniz. I choose some, some chunks of Emil. I choose some stuff from Hume and Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and all the rest. And I, I give them the primary sources and they read your book is the sort of the textbook for the class. And then I have, um, 
a reader that I create right. as a clunky, ugly course pack, right. um, which goes along with it. And then basically for their final paper, they choose one particular thinker that most intrigued them. And by the way, they, it's crazy. Like about a third of them choose Arendt. It's amazing. But Arendt. Uh, so anyway, so then they can basically, they can choose... Who are the other one of is the is there another big favorite? Well, you really? you know, you can guess. You're gonna guess right off the bat. What what are the other two? I would hope it would be Kant and Marx, but I don't know. <laughs> no, they they're afraid of Kant. Yeah. Um, it's figured. Marx and Nietzsche. Okay. So oh, I got one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's a uh, Marx, Nietzsche, and Arendt. Arendt. But uh, and I then I, mean, I get I, I get a really a lot of people who choose Rousseau as well, but yeah. not nearly as many as those three. I thought I succeeded in making Kant readable in in, in the Kant chapter. I really tried. <laughs> you do. I just the only you know because I went after I read Evil and Modern Thought, and I just loved it, loved it. I went back and I got your your dissertation. Your like you know. Um, the the unity of reason, and then I went and read that, and that is so much more detailed and more amazing. Like I wish you had, but I understand why you didn't, because it would have meant that the book would have been sort of one third content. <laughs> but I wish, I wish you had imported, you know, way in my sort of you know misery, you know, <laughs> scenario. Right? I, I wish you had imported. The, the length and detail that is in the unity of reason because it is really clear but wow it's so much more clear when you go back and read your dissertation like it, it's so much more clear it's after that I, I mean, yeah i thought I, I actually thought i did a better job in evil and modern thought because i thought further about it for 10 years but anyway people yeah the you did but but yeah the reader the reader would be like a great help and i think actually if he's looking for a model, uh, because I've imagined a model often, oh, yeah? uh, there's a there's a there's a, a, a wonderful. I think it's it is to my mind it is it is the state of the art, and it's um, it's called the American Intellectual Tradition. Uh -huh. It must be on like its eighth edition now. It's uh, it has one which is sort of pre Civil War. And the second one is post-Civil War. The American and intellectual it, tradition, is called? The American intellectual tradition. Yeah. It is absolutely the state of the art. But what they do there is they choose these really, really good selections. Uh, and then they get like some... Uh, and then the introduction, the introduction is really sort of just like one page... You know, it's not long at all, but it's so perfect. Like, it's just so, so perfect. I it, it, just, it lays out, okay. it lays, it lays out, you know, sort of what, uh, you know, what to see. So it'll have, let's say, um, Martin Luther King's uh, I Have a Dream speech. Um, and it'll have like an introduction to it. And then it'll give, you know, the speech or it'll have a, a selection from Baldwin or it's, it's just, it's so good. Um, but if he, if, but if he's looking for a way to sort of, if he's lost in the in the wilderness and he wants to make it to the promised land, tell him to <laughs> take a look at that. And if he models the reader 
the evil and modern thought reader on that, mm-hmm. everything will make sense. <laughs> it will just be, the clouds will part. Okay. The sun will, yeah, it's, it's, okay. uh, it's fantastic. Um, thank you. And you know what? It, it will probably also um, give him some, um, uh, I mean, it will encourage him when I say that you've been teaching it and you would love this and, and, and stuff like that. I mean, again, I hate to put pressure on somebody who's, trying to support a family on adjunct teaching, you know, which is, you know, a a difficult enough thing to do. And I just, you know, I've sort of put this project aside 10 years ago because I've written so much other stuff, but um, Mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, I I recently just did talk to him because I'm supposed to give some talks at, Rutgers, which were scheduled, of course, for <laughs> last spring. <laughs> now, then we're scheduled for this spring, and now we're on for twenty-two. But um, so uh, that's that's helpful. That's helpful. He wants to organize. By the way, I should ask him. We do this to definitely invite you. Trip wants to organize a conference for the twentieth anniversary of Evil and Modern Thought. I'm so all over that. <laughs> so um, you're clearly one of the best people to talk about it. Um, yeah, well, well t- might... teach, teaching on it, right? It's a, it's a very it's a very very fun book to teach on, and it it gets it, what's amazing to me is that you know we were talking about how epistemology just sort of loses almost everybody. I mean, the kind of questions that that make people who smoke a lot of weed and watch the matrix a lot right. excited, exactly. you know, like those people, it's 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 typically it's almost always a guy. Yep. It's almost always a guy who who you know just has a certain look. <laughs> Like, um, he looks like, you know, Odysseus's men lost on the <laughs> island, almost about to turn into swine. Like, so, like he has a look to him. He's got dreads. He's came back from Bali. He's kind of fun, but, you know, you wouldn't leave your goldfish with him, right? So, like, there's like, that's the kind of people that get attracted by that epistemology focus. It's, it's funny. Um, this reminds me of something, and I, I'm sure I can repeat it. That he wouldn't mind. Um Stanley Cavell does something very different with skepticism. Uh, It's much more interesting. It's much more human. He ties it to literature. He ties it to human concerns. But I still think he does too much with it. And I told him that once because he was also one of my teachers. And we had a long talk about it. I thought, you know, he could just drop the skepticism. It plays too big a role in his work. And um, he said, you know, Susan, maybe it's a male problem. (laughs) And I said, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he said, yeah, because men never know if they're actually the father of their children. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> See, this is evolutionary psychology, right? Like paternity well, yeah, yeah, uncertainty. No, no, no. Stanley, Stanley was not influenced. But you're right. It does tie into the same thing. But he was never influenced by evolutionary psychology. I think if you'd asked him what it was, uh, he wouldn't know what you were talking about. This is my <laughs> It's part of the same intellectual undercurrent, right? That he's partaking of there. That but you're right. That maleness, maleness is somehow connected to this thing. That yeah, I mean that's. I mean that could be true. But that's that's the thing, right? Like I for this is what I I really like about the framework that I've taken away from evil and modern thought and from your your work in general is that it, it, the thing is is like 
I'm not, and I'm sure you know this, I'm just clarifying this for our readers, our listeners. Um, I don't necessarily think that the market fundamentalists are all wrong, right? I don't necessarily think that the evolutionary biologists are all wrong. Um, I think, it, I think, you know, in many situations, I think it's, it's a good principle of prudence that if you're approaching a new ecosystem, you should assume that um, it probably has a logic to it that uh, that you don't understand, and that maybe just intervening and playing, you know, as we say, playing God or playing Rousseau, uh, you know, and in, in just sort of trying to sort of uh, sort of over <laughs> overrule Mother Nature, as it were. I, you know, maybe that's not such a great idea all the time. I think you know, there's a lot of evidence that that's not such a great idea. Also, clearly markets um, have a kind of logic to them that does, you know, with some regularity, give us some good results. So I'm not, I'm not saying that those things are wrong. What I, what I like about the, the framework that I got from you is that it makes it clear to me when they're making metaphysical statements. Right. right? They're basically, they're telling me that um, I should assume that you know whatever is is somehow reasonable and good and even though they themselves you know usually when they tell you oh you just need to learn more about like uh evolution or you just need to learn more economics well if you go and do your homework and come back to them a year later and say uh, okay sir i did my homework i understand how this shit works um i still don't think this makes sense then they default you know like a good jesuit to well, the Lord works in mysterious ways. <laughs> I, I, well, evolution, markets work in mysterious ways. I actually, I'll tell you a good story on that one. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't really see anything good about market fundamentalism or evolutionary psychology, but um, I was once at a conference where I, I had an hour-long argument with Steven Pinker. And just an hour. <laughs> I, I think everybody yeah. else got sick of listening to us because you know it it just it went nowhere. But um, so it, you might remember. In fact, I think I talk about him in um in moral clarity because it was on people's minds. There was a man named Wesley Autry, a black construction worker in New York, who saw a white Columbia student having an epileptic fit and falling into the subway. And Autry, he happened to have been a trained Navy SEAL, um, Autry jumped on the tracks and pushed the man down so that they both went under the train. And uh, it was an incredible act of heroism. A friend of mine who lives right near that subway station took me to see it, and he said, he said the, the, it's so small i mean the to gauge that you could you could actually survive this is you know it's kind of improbable maybe his training as a navy seal helped him but it was taking a risk so here's this black construction worker risking his life to save a white columbia student when he has children of his own he was actually taking his kids to fucking school you know <laughs> And I brought this up as an example that would seem to undercut 
um, you know, evolutionary psychology's views about altruism. And, and at the time, I mean, he got, he did get rewarded in the end because it was such an, I forget what year it was, 07 maybe. It was such, uh, you know, even, that's right, and Bush was still president and so he got invited to the State of the Union speech and I think Disneyland invited him to take his kids there for free and, you know, but um, so everybody was talking about it, you know, from left to right. Everybody uh, admired this man. And I said, doesn't our, in, you know, admiration of this thing he did, um, you know, show something? And Pinker answers, yes, it doesn't show that we would like to uh, imagine we could be as brave as Wesley Autry. It shows that we wish someone else would be as brave as Wesley Autry if we happened to fall into the subway. Yeah, there's a, a wonderful book. I don't know if you've uh, read it. Um, it really desperately needs an editor. Like, it should be half its size, but it's called uh, The Lucifer Effect by uh, Philip Zimbardo, who's the uh, yeah, former head yeah, of the... Yeah, I read it, and I met him, and we yeah, we've talked about it. Yeah, yeah well, he has, uh, he has a... a a chapter at the end of the book, which actually is probably one of the best chapters in the entire book. Um, it's all on heroism. And yeah. he talks about Phil Audrey and he talks about what he did and how um, the, the disconnect between, um, and he, he essentially says that if you want people to behave heroically, I mean, this is something you say again and again as well in moral clarity and, and also in learning from the Germans. Uh, actually, you also say it in Why Grow Up. But uh, <laughs> it's that, uh, that basically if you, want, um, if you want people to behave heroically more often, people need to train for heroism. Right. Like they need to think, you know, people, people read... Um, Lives of noble Greeks and Romans. Exactly. And that that inspired Plutarch. them. That ins- they read Plutarch and that inspired them to be heroic. Like we recently had the um, the sort of anniversary, well, anniversary, it's a pretty terrible anniversary of the Montreal massacre, right? Yeah. When this like this this misogynistic right. prick like went and killed all of these women engineers because he thought that they stole his spot. It was actually completely not true. But anyway, um, he, um, we had an anniversary about that. And it was so interesting to me how, you know, I, I posted, because at, at my college, I, I lobbied very much to get our new science building named after the John Abbott College student who was killed in the Montreal massacre, Henry Edward. And so and it worked. Uh, our science building is the Anne Marie Edward building, oh, science building. And uh, anyway, so we had this discussion on social media where, um, you know, I was, I, I just mentioned it in an offhand way, the way I imagine Philip Aubrey would say to his kids, who, you know, he jumped in front of a subway right in front of them. I, I, I said, you know, well, my sons would, would not have stood by and let that happen they would have intervened um you know even if it had cost them their life they would jump in because you know mark lepin clearly told the men you can leave and let them leave 
And then he proceeded to execute the women and then he ran out of bullets. And so he killed the rest of the women with like, you know, with knives and with like blunt, like, and this whole while there's guys outside who didn't do anything. Um, it's really, really horrible. Um, and one of the guys afterwards, uh, you know, committed suicide because he felt so guilty that he had done nothing. Right. And, um, anyway, and so it was so interesting, the, you know, informed by, by you and by Zimbardo and by many other people, um, we had, there's this whole discussion happening on Facebook about this. And I said, uh, somebody brought this up, like, you should be ashamed of yourself, shaming those men for, you know, behaving just in a totally normal way. He had a gun, they didn't. And I said, look, I understand. I fully understand like why they did what they did, but I'm not going to praise them for it. I'm not going to celebrate that. And, um, and I definitely think um, that guy who killed himself, I get it. I totally get it. Uh, I'm sure I would want to kill myself too if I stood back and let that shit happen. And I, you know, and if, if either of my sons were there in that school, that engineering school, and they let that happen, um, obviously I would love them forever no matter what happened, no matter what they did, but I wouldn't be proud of them that day at all. I'd be embarrassed of them. And they know I mean, that. The awful thing is, is normalizing that behavior because that is. Yes. Normalizing cowardice. That is not how we used to talk. Uh, Arendt goes on about this. And I mean, but can you believe Pinker tying himself up and not saying, no, we don't admire Autry because we like to think we could be similarly heroic. We admire him because we want other people to save us. You know, I mean, it just, it's just, uh, yeah, I met Zimbardo. Zimbardo read Moral Clarity too, and he got in touch <gasps> with me because uh, I think it came out around the same time as the Lucifer Project. I don't remember exactly, because he was start, trying to start this whole heroism project. And, uh, um, you know, he had a little network built up. I honestly haven't even checked to see. He was getting quite old when I met him. Yeah. And I have not, you know, Googled him to try and see if he's still active or if he ever made anything out of this network. But, um, yeah, it's that's that's well, I think it's my next book, except that I want to write a short thing taking on um, actually also taking on a little bit um, evolutionary psychology, but mostly taking on identity post-colonial discourse on the left. And uh, I'm writing together with a friend of mine. We hope that we can pull together a short, snappy <laughs> intervention. <laughs> a short <laughs> by, uh, let's say, by the beginning of the summer. That's our goal. And then I will start working on the Heroes book, which has to be done. Awesome. Well, that, that actually segues perfectly into my last question which will get us into the time we time frame we wanted to stick to uh, which is there's a new book which well it's relatively new it came out this year earlier on this year which uh, my uh, producer Eric Stegang um, he recommended it to me and uh, we've both been reading it it is just fascinating it's by this Harvard professor 
uh, Henrik, and it's called uh, The Weirdest People in the World. Okay. Now, this is a book that has been much anticipated. Uh, he is the one, uh, you pro- this will probably ring a bell for you. Uh, about, about a decade ago, he uh, is just like, you know, one of those things where you just ask some really good questions. He basically, he's the one who threw a, a, like a smart bomb into the whole psychology discipline by saying, has it ever occurred to you that almost all of your studies are done on Western college students and that Western college students may not be sort of uh, a good representative sample <laughs> of the whole world of, yeah. of human beings that they might actually. And so what he did is he, he took a bunch of the kind of standard, standard experiments that are, that are given um, that are, they're used to sort of bolster main uh, pillars of modern uh, psychological theory. And he went and he, he asked those same questions to people on like, random like rural islands in Fiji and Papua New Guinea and to hunter gatherers in the Kalahari and to Australian Aborigines and to, and even, even to sort of like uh, the kind of people you see on the wire, you know, like inner city Baltimore, like gang members. And, you know, like he, he went to all these other kind of places and asked them the same questions. Turns out you get radically different answers. Oh, that's fascinating. I'll order that book too. Yeah, and and I think I think this book um, provides a really interesting sort of. Okay, I'll I'll just give you like a vastly simplified. He says that a lot of the things that we, you, you, some people criticized evil and modern thought, but they said, well, you know, you should specify that this is European. Uh, now, I think what, what Henrik would say is that actually, um, you know, the biggest religion on planet Earth right now is, um, is Christianity. And Christianity, 85% of the world's Christians um, derive from the Western church, from the Catholic church. So not from like, uh, they, they are ultimately derived from the, the Roman church as opposed to, let's say, the Orthodox church or you know, the various other kinds of flavors of Christianity. And so he says, actually, the ways of thinking, the the ways of rewriting uh, the mind that are created by uh, the Western church actually have informed the way people think in a lot of parts of the world. It's very, very, very fascinating. But he, he essentially says that, like, once you have high rates of literacy, it it completely rewrites uh, the software, the, the hardware of your brain. Uh-huh. But th- like in some very dramatic ways, like for instance, people and, and Jews apparently have been um, among other groups have been doing this for, for many centuries that once you have literacy, it actually causes such disruption and jerry rigging in your brain that your facial recognition part of your brain switches to the other hemisphere. And so you're not, you're not as good as at recognizing faces, but because you have to use up all sorts of kind of bandwidth and for, (laughs) for, for literacy. And like, it's just so completely wild, but I just, I think it would, um, 
it, it would explain a lot of the, a lot, like for instance, he says that, um, he gives this one example. He says, you go all over the, all over the world, they've given this, it's, you, everybody's heard of the prisoner's dilemma, but this one's the, the passenger's dilemma, right? Where you're driving in a car and with your friend and your friend hits somebody and he's driving 45 miles an hour in a 20 mile zone um, and he kills the person, right? Now, his, his lawyer tells you, if you will lie in court for your friend and say that he was going the speed limit, there was absolutely no cameras, there were no witnesses, it was just you and your friend. If you will lie in court, he will get a vastly reduced sentence. Wow. Um, are you, you you're familiar with this? No, I'm not, but it's a tough dilemma. Yeah, and so would, would you? And so then he looks at the answers, and it is absolutely stunning. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, the book is way more rich than this, and it, it includes like kind of a hundred examples like this. But when you go... Um, around the world, when you ask people who are involved in prison gangs, when you involve people in like Fiji Islands, what you find is that there are a lot of places in the world where intention doesn't matter. Right. Like they don't care. They don't care. Like you are supposed to have total loyalty to your friend um, and you're a terrible person. The other one is they say like, uh, you know, a guy's sitting in a cafe working on his laptop Somebody comes in and steals it, okay? Then second scenario, he's working on his laptop. He puts his laptop into his bag. Uh, somebody comes in who has the same bag and mistakenly leaves with his bag. Should the punishment be different for person A or person B? You know, in the West, we just completely automatically think, well, uh, you know, murder, manslaughter. It's like intention matters, right? But as it turns out, there are a lot of humans on planet Earth and probably uh, most humans in human history, he claims, um, that saw no difference between the punishment. They didn't really care whether you intended it or not. I have they, to tell you about that intention may not matter in the first case because um, I, I had a friend once who he really was driving 20 miles an hour, solid person, and an eight-year-old girl darted out to get her ball in the street and he killed her and oh, there were witnesses Jesus. and it was all clear that he was obeying the law, but I'm not sure he ever got over it. You know, it just, it just stayed with him. Um, so, you know, in that kind of a case, I, I mean, I just happen to know that it, it may not matter. John, I'm going to have to go soon. You have absolutely succeeded yeah. distracting <laughs> me from my current controversy that I have to get back to. But may I ask you one question? Yes. And you put this on the record or off the record as you choose. Uh, it, it, it seems to me, although we haven't ever met IRL, that you actually understand my work as well as anybody in the world. And um, I would like to ask you a question about the ne this next little project that I want to do. Um, as I'm sure you, <laughs> I mean, I don't assume Montreal is different from anywhere else. The, um, you know, the guiding ideology of the left today comes basically from Foucault. Um, who I see as Thrasymachus, 
plus Carl Schmidt, who's even worse than <laughs> Thurston McKesson, is absolutely crazy that the left has taken him on. Um, and, you know, that leads, for me, to certain problems in, uh, y- you know, contemporary anti-racist politics and post-colonial theory and so on. I did not take any of those things on in moral clarity, partly because I didn't know enough about them, and it wasn't clear to me just how dominant that trend was going to become. It is absolutely the dominant trend, uh, you know, not just in many universities, but in Europe, uh, you know, in the major cultural institutions. It's, you know, it's sort of Foucault's Bible, and that's where you start. And... I confess I was a bit disappointed that my work has not, you know, been brought into that discussion, although I do think that moral clarity has an awful lot of answers to those discussions. But because it I don't get fooled again is directly about that. Yeah. I know, I know. But but it is directly about that, but I don't name any of them by name. I think no. I do mention Foucault. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I really thought it was just much more productive to develop an alternative view than to attack the views I disagree with directly. And it now seems to me that that was, well, maybe not the wrong strategy initially, but that I need a different strategy if I want to affect, um, a set of trends on the left that I think are devastating. And that's how this um, friend of mine, Todd Gitlin and I, um, who has also written about, um, you know, similar questions in the past. That's how we got together and thought we would write a, um, you know, like a hundred page book on the subject. And I don't have know. You reached, have you reached out to your friend Cornell West? I know he loves you. Have you reached out to him? Because he's been really critical of this too. I mean, if you read his yeah. review of Ta-Nehisi Coates, yeah. I mean, he basically says exactly what you're saying. I know he does. Um, yeah, and we, we, we were friends for quite a while. I think Cornell and I did not go with his um, anti-Obama crusade. Uh, <laughs> we, we stopped being in touch. And I have written to him since, but haven't gotten an answer. I also hear he's not too well. So no, he's um, not. He's not. It's yeah. sad, but it is but yeah, sad, I mean, he basically I, he makes the same point. He's I like, know, I know. This I know. this identity politics is a dead end because it ends up just meaning you know, bless my brother, curse my you know, curse my friends, bless my enemies, bless my friends, curse, curse my, my enemies. enemies. Exactly. Like, it's yeah. So it's it's yeah. it's the it's the it's the as you say in. Um, I think it's a more clarity that this is yeah, the, the sort of the original exactly, sin in Marxism. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I haven't been in touch with um, Cornell for a few years, and I know that that's what he's—that's the position he's taken, and a lot of people have criticized him for it. Um, but uh, anyway, just telling you that that's on my—the uh, first thing on my agenda right now. And if you had any ideas, because uh, I have been taking notes from some of your ideas here in this discussion. If you have any ideas that are pertinent to that, I'd love to hear about them, because Todd and I really are trying to get out a, a, quick, uh, a quick, sharp book soon. Like, we've 
sort of set ourselves to write a book proposal by the beginning of the year. If I'm yeah. not too involved. In I'm, I'm totally down. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you have any yeah. thoughts, please send them to me. I'd really appreciate it. Um, I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> cool. You know, what's funny is I find that the kill shot with my, with my students, with my, especially with my Jewish students, or at least ones that are not sympathetic to anti-Semitism, is I say, why don't you apply the logic of identity politics to Jews? So it's, it's one thing if you say, okay, I'm so sick of seeing so many white men uh, who are over, overrepresented in Canadian academia and American academia and in journalism and in publishing and in, you know, whatever. Um, most people can hear that and be like, oh, okay, maybe I'm okay with that. I even it would be mostly okay with that. <laughs> but if you sort of then look at the, the stats on the percentage of people in uh, publishing and in like academia or journalism who are Jews as a percentage of their population, and you proceed with the logic that the only thing that is justice is that there is a direct one-to-one relationship between your demographic numbers versus your, you know, positions in in power. Um, then you suddenly get this this um, picture where um, Jews, Mormons, um, Hindu, South Asians, and Chinese. Are, and, and now, most recently, Nigerians are way out of whack to their percentage of the population. They are they overperform in a number of different fields. And so, if you're going to say that um, that would actually mean you ending up taking a pretty Nazi-like position, right? Um, and usually, when I when I lay it out for them like that, and I'm like, okay, here's the percentage of people in Canada and the United States that are Nigerian, that are Han Chinese, that are Hindu South Asian, that are Mormon. Uh, those are the the four groups and Jews that are that just bat far above their weight consistently. Um, do you really want to take all those people's jobs and positions away in the name of justice? Like, does that feel good to you? Like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, it is, there are a lot of tricky questions, John. I'm totally enjoying this, but I do have to yeah, yeah. writing. All right. This. Yes. But if if you have further thoughts on this question, I'd really love to hear them. I I, I deeply appreciate uh, your thoughts about my work. So, and it sounds like we're you know very much on the same page about my very story. much. Yeah. So, <laughs> All um, right. Uh, take care. Good luck with the with good luck with the article. And please send it to me when you're done. I'd really like to read it. Do you read German? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Please please send it when you're done. <laughs> I go okay. to a German church. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. please send it. <laughs> but we'll do. Uh, I'll send the original attack then and the answer when I'm done. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye-bye.